From Islamic Finance News, the world's leading Islamic finance news provider, this is IFN Podcast. Hi, welcome to the IFN Podcast. My name is Nisreen and I'm your host today. With me in this episode are two team members from national law firm Foot Anstey. Managing Associate Lingzi Wang and Associate Lina Payapili, who have both been involved in the firm's Islamic finance deals. Foot Anstey is the winner of the IFN Law Award 2022 under the FinTech category. Thank you for joining us today, Lingzi and Lina. Oh, thank you, Nasreen. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for having us, Nasreen. All right, so um, we know uh, that Foot Anstey, um, for the most part, the work that you have been involved in is mostly within the real estate sector. Um, so it's been nice to see more involvement that, that Foot Anstey has in the fintech sector uh, uh, lately. Um, could you maybe share with us uh, what you think are the differences or the similarities between Islamic financial transactions in the two sectors? Um, I, I'll answer this one, this read. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, so the, I think in terms of this, uh, the, I guess the, the main differences between the two is in the real estate sector, because it's relatively mature business, um, we while working off um, as kind of a, a, as precedent set of documentation, a precedent set the processes, um, both um, all parties in the transaction, whether they're acting for the investor, the vendor, um, the banks, um, or any of the um, other uh, associated uh, elements are all familiar with the process and therefore um, know how to kind of work from basically the, the start to the end. Um, obviously, in the fintech sector, it's very, very innovative. It's very early days. So oftentimes, we are being asked to almost craft the documentation and to kind of work out what the processes would be from the um, very outset. Um, and then um, once those processes um, have, and documentation have been established, um, in some ways, the lawyers then try to take a step back from that role because the idea of the fintech is that the platform should be able to almost run itself mm. um, once the um, once everything is in place, the fintech should, in, in, mm. uh, in an ideal scenario, not have have to constantly refer back to its legal advisors to tweak documentation or to kind of manage the process. I suppose the exceptions to that would be those fintechs that specialize in the real estate sector, Mm. where obviously there is an ongoing uh, management process as well uh, that needs to be undertaken uh, with the assistant lawyer. So it's basically marrying the fintech side with the existing um, real estate um, processes, which obviously, you know, won't be changed because um, we're still dealing with a real asset um, deal. Uh, I suppose that's kind of where the the, the differences are, I guess, in terms of similarities. Uh, obviously, um, the print, everything is based around the principles of Sharia. Um, and um, there are, um, I guess, limited numbers of um, Sharia compliance structures which um, are used by a lot of financial institutions. Um, mm-hmm. So as a result, um, oftentimes we are being asked to look at innovative ways of adapting, uh, for example, Kamati Marabaha, Marabaha Dimitri Masharaka, um, and other structures which um, people may not have previously considered um, in a uh, fintech context. Uh, Lena, is there anything you wanted to add? 
I think Lingsy's covered it all. I think I would just add that um, when it comes to um, kind of deciding what the, the client wants, so if we're acting for a client on these documents, you know, it's always good to have those discussions initially just to completely understand exactly what they're looking for, have that in-depth conversation so that we can um, produce those legal documents from the outset. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really key. Um, so that, like Lingzi said, that, you know, there, there won't be need to kind of keep coming back to us in the later stages. Um, and, you know, a little related to this, um, I had wanted to ask you um, what some of the highlights uh, were for, for, you know, each of you in terms of um, transactions or deals that you were involved in in the last 12 months. Is there a specific one or two deals that um, come to mind when it comes to Islamic finance transactions that you thought were, you know, unique? Um, I'll I'll start off with this with this read. Um, mm -hmm. I think what we have seen in the past twelve months, certainly from a real estate space, is um, a certain level of maturity um, with Islamic banks um, mm -hmm. and also investors in the kind of asset classes they are now seeking to finance and invest in. Um, we have been involved with a, a, a number of rather high profile um, real asset acquisitions in the UK by overseas investors in the past 12 months. Um, examples of such, such as hotel, offices, student accommodation, um, and, 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 such, and such assets like that. And the, the fact that we are working hand in hand with um, Islamic banks that um, are able to um, you know, finance the such um, high value acquisitions um, and in, in such a and structure them in such a way that um, but not only it, it, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be um, someone who's specifically seeking um, Sharia compliant financing is very exciting because it demonstrates a certain level of maturity in the market uh, and also a level of understanding by those who um, are accessing um, the financial markets that is obviously Sharia compliant financing is not unusual. It's, it's not something mysterious. Um, it's something which um, anyone can access and can utilize and it will be able to um, fit. It's, it's fit for purpose as well. So that's obviously a very exciting uh, aspect. And we'll obviously, um, from a real estate point of view, we hope to see that uh, grow and grow. Uh, what do you think, Lena? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I've noticed in the last kind of 12 months um, within the deals that I've done is that there's a, a lot more um, kind of customers or so the bank's customers who are incorporated offshore, um, mm -hmm. which is quite, um, you know, um, interesting just because um, recently there's been a lot of talk about, you know, um, making sure there's more transparency in who, who owns these structures, but that hasn't really stopped people still incorporating within offshore jurisdictions so right. within the uk there's now new regulation where you know you're supposed to register these offshore companies within the uk company's house um platform so that everyone knows who ultimately owns these structures but um yeah it's it's it's, it's good to see that that hasn't kind of stopped people um you know still incorporating in the jurisdictions because i think they still want to benefit from the tax um, benefits in that jurisdiction so that's mm. something that I just I just thought that might be in decline but you know what it hasn't really stopped people still incorporating in those jurisdictions. Um, and speaking of the UK market if I was wondering if you guys could I mean either one of you could speak on um, a, a recent trend that we had observed 
with Islamic banks in the UK that have been pausing their mortgage businesses in response to like a high demand that that I'm assuming they cannot meet. Um, I wanted to see if you guys had anything to say about the trend, um, your insight on this as, you know, industry players and experts. Um, there, There is demand um, in the UK market still for the real estate elements um, from, you know, the Middle East um, investors uh, and other jurisdictions. Um, but at the same time, because... Um, the UK is kind of going through an economic turmoil currently with um, interest rates going up right. quite quite exponentially. We've also seen that, um, you know, the, the negotiations between the bank and the customers are taking a lot longer uh-huh. in terms of, uh, you know, finalizing the pricing strategy. So um, just to give a bit of an example, so the profit element of, let's say, commodity Maraba structure is still based on a reference rate. So usually you'll be a Bank of England base rate. Uh-huh. And if obviously that's going up, then customers are going to look at that and just think, oh, is that still affordable for me to get that financing from the bank? So um even though there is demand, um, you know, that the negotiation is taking a lot longer. Um, and also there's, uh, you know, discussions about whether it should be a variable rate or a fixed rate. And people mm. wanting to just kind of think about that a bit more before agreeing to the terms set by the bank. So um, I think that's one thing. And also the banks itself are looking at the uh, their existing portfolios and their existing financing um, that they've provided because, Currently, um, you know, the, the interest, um, the, the profit element, sorry, of um, the financing might be um, in comparison to the rental income that's being produced by the property. Um, the ratio might be a bit um, kind of not not exactly what the bank wants. Usually there's some sort of ratio that the bank would be comfortable with. But now that the profit element is going up, um, you know, the rental income doesn't quite match that or isn't enough to cover it. So the banks are kind of looking at the structures currently and just seeing how they can deal with any sort of breaches. So there's a pause on that element as well. I see. Thank you so much, Lena. Um, Lindsay, is there anything you wanted to add? Um, no, I think Lena's um, covered most of the points um, on that. Um, okay. yeah, I think it's just um, it's wider global markets are just distorting what's what's occurring in the Islamic finance market. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, um, I have one last question for both of you. What is exciting in terms of you know um, Islamic finance transactions in any sector? You know which sector you find. Um, is exciting or up and coming in the next 12 months? And also, if there are any specific markets that Foot Anstey is looking at that you guys don't have covered currently, that maybe we could share with our listeners. Um, yeah, I think um, for us, um, being based in the UK, the UK is obviously still a very exciting market. There's also huge amounts of growth potential, especially around the fintech sphere. Um, I believe, according to the um, IFN um, fintech mapping, there's currently about 40 um, established Islamic fintechs in the UK. Obviously, that number has continued to grow, um, and the um, the UK government um, has um, ha- ha- has always had a strong strategy of supporting um, what fintech businesses in general. Um, 
So I think for us, um, focusing on our core market is still going to be uh, something we're going to look forward to in the next 12 months. Um, but I think looking further overseas, uh, I think Malaysia for, for us has always been um, uh, an our market where we look to to see what's actually going to happen next um, and potentially see what we can learn because uh, what we found with um, certainly with Malaysian regulators and um, established Malaysian banks and fintechs is that they're always seem to be certainly more one step ahead than everyone else seem to be more Mm. innovative and um, in establishing what is possible within the boundaries of Sharia Um, so I think that's uh, something looking overseas is going to be a big thing for us and I suppose um, finally um, given the um, that we've got COP27 and that's obviously in the news a lot um, look, it's working out whether there's a kind of establishment between um, you know the environmental, sustainable environmental goals and um, Islamic businesses, I think that's probably um, some a more of a longer term um, mm-hmm. objective because um, as um, the GCC countries um, start pivot away from being wholly reliant on um, fossil fuels for their revenues. Um, obviously, they are you know, potentially a very good source for renewable energy. Um, whether we will start seeing more of a focus on so, the you know, establishment of um, correlation, I guess, between the environmental um, goals and environmental financing, but using, uh, I guess, using Sharia compliant financing to support that. Lena, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think um, definitely in agreement with Lindsay about um, the fintech sector being quite exciting uh, right now. It's it's still kind of, you know, in an infancy stage within the UK, the Islamic fintech sector. There's, um, you know, um, a lot of fintechs coming um, into the market where they're providing crowdfunding and peer-to-peer platforms and investment platforms, but there's still a lot of potential for new entrants in the market as well. So, you know, maybe a fintech uh, a company that can provide personal finance or car finance or insurance so there's that potential for growth is really mm. exciting um for sure and you know me and Lindsay were discussing before how you know there is no islamic equivalent of like a paypal or an apple pay exactly market or a klarna you know buy now later and, and pay true. later apps that kind of stuff so it's really exciting to see what's going to come up within the market it's it's grown a lot in the last few years but there's still so much more that can be done and we also want to need know whether um, any of the UK products can kind of get a global reach as well, um, or is it going to just kind of stick within the UK and within the Muslim population within the UK? Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in terms of regions, um, obviously Malaysia is um, a key region, but I think Dubai as well, um, right. with its creation of the DIFC FinTech Hive, I think it just makes it an exciting region just because obviously you can see that there's a real commitment to creating an environment where FinTechs can explore their ideas, investment opportunities and obtain you know more of a a better support system which I don't think you know it's existing in the UK so it would be great if you know those hubs like the Malaysia fintech hub and the Dubai fintech hub kind of talks to the UK fintech hub and you know they can kind of share ideas and um, and perhaps you know provide more investment towards the UK fintech sphere as well especially in the Islamic fintech um, 
area I think that's that's quite exciting if that happens um I think one thing that a lot of people discuss is this whole um Sharia sandbox I'm sure you've heard that term now um being thrown around um you know currently the FCA has kind of a an innovation hub or a regulatory sandbox where um you can test products but it's, it's in a very conventional side um but at the same time we probably want a sandbox where um, the Sharia approval aspect of it can be tested, which mm. is kind of existing in this other region, so Malaysia or Dubai, but it's not really within the UK. So it'll be just good if everyone can just kind of speak to each other and come to some sort of, you know, um, a support system where all of these different elements can work together as well. Right. Well, um, thank you so much for that. I think that's about it. Um if there's anything else that you uh, either one of you wanted to add, um, yeah, just on the question on the point of demand, I just want to say I think um, I read some statistics um, recently. Obviously, that um, okay, non-Muslims just in the UK, but Muslims actually across Europe are actually some of one of the most um, underbanked groups um, within um, the Europe, the population of Europe. So I think there's there's always going to be a, quite a large demand for these products obviously as Nina said and you know the sandboxes that are there and are able to kind of accelerate the growth of the fintechs that's always going to be a positive thing mm. um but just uh, also want to just add is that um what we've seen is that some um fintechs is that well it's not fintechs have actually started um using the um i guess the ethical marketing as part of their global marketing as well um, and whether we might see closer alignment between um, Islamic fintechs and ethical fintechs. Um, obviously, that would, um, if that gets opened up, then potentially there will be more of a clamor to for maybe the, uh, the regulators to start setting up you know, dedicated ethical or um, ESG or SDG sandboxes, which would then kind of be able to roll together with the Islamic fintechs together and help to kind of accelerate the entire um, sector as a whole. So that's just a, another additional thought on that. Right. Okay. Thank you, Lingzi. Okay. Well then, um, I think that's it. That's our time. I'd like to thank both of you for joining us today and for sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much. Happy to. <laughs> Thank you for listening. For more discussions on the Islamic finance industry, log on to www.islamicfinancenews.com. You can also listen to IFN Podcast on your favorite platforms, including iTunes and Spotify.